We're beginning four-week Advent series, uh, and we're entitling it The King Has Come. So over the past several weeks, what we've been doing is we've been diving through the Sermon on the Mount, which is probably the most popular teaching of Jesus, and looking at what does it look like to be children in the kingdom of God. So Jesus over and over is kind of laying out, hey, here's what the kingdom looks like. And so for Advent, what we're going to do is we're actually going to go back to the beginning of Matthew. So Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5 through 7. We're going to do Matthew 1 through 2 today and look at uh, how Matthew introduced this king to us. So what does it look like to live in the kingdom, that Sermon on the Mount, and what does it look like uh, the king? Who is he? What, what is going on? How is Jesus a king? So that's what we'll be doing over the next four weeks. So we're kind of tackling these series like Star Wars, you know, movies four through six came out first and then one through three came out. So we're doing that, the middle of Matthew and then going back to the beginning. Hopefully these sermons aren't as bad as movies one through three though, okay? Hopefully it's good as well. So uh, the title, The King Has Come, Matthew is writing an account of his gospel and what it looks like to be under King Jesus and focusing, Matthew is, on the kingship of Jesus over and over and over again. So before we dive in, I figured it would be helpful to take a very brief look at all four of the Gospels, just so that you kind of know the direction that we're going. So I have a chart, hopefully it's helpful, but each Gospel kind of focuses on something slightly different. And so though there's a lot of the same similarities, there's also a pretty broad difference between them all. So Matthew, which we'll be studying, was written mainly to the Jews, to a Jewish audience. So that means what Matthew does is throughout uh, his uh, uh, text, he'll say things like, this was to fulfill the scriptures. And why is he saying that? Well, because the Jews were very, very familiar with the Old Testament. So Mark, Luke, or John never used that phrase because they weren't really writing to those people. And if they do, they explain how it fulfilled it. So Luke talks a lot about the virgin birth, but to a Gentile audience who wasn't used to hearing those things, he would explain more so, whereas Matthew would just quote the scripture and say, this was to fulfill the scriptures. So Matthew is contextualizing the gospel to them or trying to evangelize or help them understand who Jesus is in a way that is most relevant or understanding to them. Matthew is focusing on Jesus as king. In contrast, what Mark is doing is he's focusing on the servanthood of Jesus, and he's focusing on Jesus as the, the, the servant man. He's writing to the common uh, Greek there. Luke is writing mainly to Gentiles or to Romans, which is why he starts not with the genealogy of Abraham, but he starts all the way back with the genealogy of Adam to show that Jesus came from Adam, so he is therefore a descendant of all mankind. So Luke is being very inclusive. Matthew is showing, hey, he's the king of David. He is from Abraham, something that the Jews would have been very familiar with, which we'll look at today. Matthew focuses on Jesus as king, Mark as servant, Luke as perfect man, and John focuses on Jesus as God. Some people use animals to describe Jesus. There's an angel in heaven uh, that has four faces on four different sides. I know it's really crazy. We're not doing Revelation today, so I won't explain that. But uh, there is actually depicted in Christ, too. There's a lion face or the king. Matthew is the lion. There's an ox or a servant animal. Uh, Mark is focusing on Jesus as servant. There is a man, uh, Lucas focused on Jesus as the perfect human, and then God or an eagle because he's over all, he can see all, he's sovereign over all. And so as you see, the gospel writers had kind of different intent there. And so what we're doing today is we're focusing on Matthew's gospel, as you can see outlined there. The different things that Matthew focuses on is helpful for us to know kind of where we're going as a whole. So today we're looking at how Jesus is the king of David, 
Next week, we're looking at how he's the king of the Jews. The following week, we'll be looking at how he's the king of the world. And then the last week, we'll be looking at how he is the king of kings. Okay, so all, Matthew is being very poetic and very intentional. And the way he lays out his gospels is because, or his passages, because he's saying, look, Jesus is king over this set of people, over this set of people, over this set of people, and over these set of people. Jesus is king over all. Let me show you different ways to highlight the kingship of Jesus and how he he fulfills in a lot of ways all of what scripture was about for the king to come. I thought that that candle just fell and that scared the junk out of me. I'm not going to go over there because I will lit up on fire. All right. Um, so Matthew sets up his gospel in a wonderful way to gaze upon the wonder of our king. Let us never lose our wonder. That's what Matthew's trying to help his readers do is not lose the wonder of who Jesus is. And so uh, we're going to be walking through the genealogy of Jesus today. All right. Now, I know what you're thinking. Are we going to spend a whole sermon just reading a bunch of names? Well, yeah, that's actually exactly what we're going to do. All right. We're literally not going anywhere else today. But where we come from is important to us, is it not? Like, like where we come from, our, our history, our genealogy, like how many of you know a decent amount about your heritage, about your ancestors? Like you kind of know, yeah, see a good amount, about half the people in the room, okay? Like what countries you came from, a lot of people know that, or like your grandmother's grandfather fought in this war or something, he was a war hero in this way, you know? I'm about 33% African-American about 25% Dutch, about 25% other European countries, and then about 12.5% Native American. That's kind of cool, right? Like, and we know that. I know my Native American grandfather who's 100%. I know, obviously, my dad, who's mostly black. I know all these things, right? So I understand kind of where I came from, and it does kind of create who you are. It kind of shapes your identity a little bit. My sister-in-law uh, was, uh, is a relative of Alexander Hamilton. That's kind of cool, all right? I was trying to find somebody famous. That was the closest I can get, my sister-in-law, okay? Uh, Natalie is just really white, but that's really cool too, all right? She's not even in here to hear that joke. That's the bad thing, all right? But genealogies mean something, okay? They're, they're important to us. And so today we're looking at the genealogy of Jesus. Where did Jesus come from? Now, what happens is for most people is you begin to read the genealogy, and then about 2.7 seconds in, you come across a name you can't pronounce, and then you just kind of skim down so you can get to the meat of the text, right? And you kind of glaze over the genealogy. But Matthew is a skilled writer that is being inspired by the Holy Spirit. Neither Matthew nor the Holy Spirit would waste their breath on something that wasn't actually important. And so the fact that Matthew lays this out, it actually means it's really, really important. It's just usually when you don't do enough digging, enough diving in to see the full importance of it. And so that's what we're going to do today, okay? So Matthew chapter 1, I'm going to literally read the whole text for us today, and then we're going to go back through and chop it up, all right? Matthew chapter 1, <clears throat> beginning to verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Anne uh, Zerah by Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king, right? So notice, Matthew keeps sneaking all these little things in here for us, okay? And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. 
And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, I always mess that up, Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abud, Abud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliad, and Eliad, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Matham, and Matham, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from the deportation, or from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and the deportation Deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. I feel like I should get like a round of applause for all those names. Right? Uh, how terrible is that, right? Okay. So uh, the way that you get through names in the Bible that you don't know is you just say them super confidently, and nobody else knows them either. So you just think you're saying the right thing, right? So, okay. Notice in Matthew chapter 1, right off the beginning, Jesus, or Matthew, sorry, is saying very particularly what he wants to say about Jesus. He's highlighting exactly what he wants us to know, that Christ is the son of David, the son of Abraham. Okay, so he names these two patriarchs that would have sparked a ton of intrigue and awe and wonder and remembrance in the normal Jewish reader's mind. They would have remembered exactly who Abraham was, exactly who David was. These were the two men that the two main covenants of the Old Testament passed through. And so they were very different covenants, but they kind of highlighted what God wanted to do in the world. For Abraham, the covenant, the promise of God was that he would bless the whole whole world through Abraham's seed, that the whole world will be blessed through Abraham. And David, God promised to rule the whole world through David's seed. And so through the two men, we see a blessing for the whole world and kingship or rule or reign over the whole world. He's going to serve the whole world, but also be over the whole world through these two men. And these were the main covenants of the Old Testament. So Matthew goes on to say, hey, Jesus is the one who both rules the world, is a sovereign king, but he also blesses the world. He serves the world. He honors the world. And that's really what all of Matthew's gospel is about, is looking at the magnitude of the kingship of Jesus, but also the service of Jesus, even though a king, he comes to serve humanity. And so Jesus went through, as we could see, the line of Abraham, and he also went through the line of David. Now, Matthew does a little cute thing where he lines up 14 names in each. There were more names that the Jew would have commonly known. That that's not like a trick or something weird. He just took out some names so that you can remember it. But in Chronicles, you would have been able to find all of them. He's just trying to create a device to help the Jews remember exactly who Jesus passed through and kind of name some very important names there. But what we notice is that through the genealogy of Jesus, that he had the appropriate title, the appropriate uh, uh, position to be able to be the King of David, 
which is what we're looking at today. Jesus is the king of David. Now, a little bit more subtle than actually going through the genealogy, jump down to verse 16 again, because up until this point, we see this phrase, the father of, the father of, the father of, over and over and over again. However, notice that it does not say that Joseph was the father of Jesus. In fact, it's a little bit harder to see in the English, but in Greek, which is what it was written in, which is the the context of this, the context of that verse as a whole sort of shifts. So throughout the whole first part, all of the pronouns are masculine pronouns. However, at this point, they switch into what's called a feminine relative pronoun. That's cool, right? Okay, let's keep going. I'm totally kidding. (laughs) You're like, what the Santa Claus does that mean, right? Okay, what this is indicating, all right, is that Jesus was the physical child of Mary, so hint of whom Jesus was born. He was the physical child of Mary, but that Joseph was not his daddy, okay? So if they were on Maury and they got a card out, Joseph would not be Jesus's baby daddy, right? Like, Like he would be somebody totally different. And Matthew's being very, very purposeful in understanding that. Now, this is actually really important in what Matthew is doing because uh, Jesus had to be both God and man in order to save humanity. And so literally in the genealogy, Matthew kind of slips this subtle but this very beautiful thing in to show that Jesus was both God and man. So he had to be born of the Holy Spirit to be God. And he was. Mary had no husband. She knew no man. There was a miraculous virgin birth which should explode and implode your mind at the exact same time, right? Like this is a profound thing. And we'll get into that more in a couple of weeks. But Jesus also had to be the correct owner of the Davidic throne. And so coming through that line of Joseph, Joseph being the surrogate dad in some ways, Jesus did have that right. Literally, according to the law, even though he was not technically that son because he was into the family, he could have that throne, that reign, that rule. So Jesus both has the right reign as the king of David, but he also was not born of man and so therefore can be God. Jesus is both God and man, able to save us from our sins as God, but pay for our sins as man. This is crazy. And this is found in the genealogy. Right? Matthew is trying to sneak this in to help us understand all of what God is doing. Now, here's one of the most profound things in the midst of all of this. It's that even though the Jews began to grow really weary of what was going on, I mean, it had been 400 years since they had a prophet. The Jews were tired. They were waiting for the Messiah. They started kind of making up ways that the Messiah would come. Men came as false messiahs. You think about the promise of Abraham where God told Abraham at 75, you're going to have a kid, which at 75, it's like, that's pretty unbelievable, but maybe, okay? God then doesn't speak to Abraham again until he's 99. And within that time, God or Abraham kind of took it into his own plan, trying to fulfill the promises of God. Well, that's what the Jews were doing. God promised a king that was going to come, but then it had been 400 years, and what is God doing? So they start trying to take matters to their own hands, and then incepts King Jesus, the rightful reign of the Davidic throne, but yet God in the flesh. What does that tell us? Well, that tells us, point one, is that God will always fulfill or keep his promises. God is always going to fulfill, or he's always going to keep his promise, right? So even though it may not be what we think, It may not be what we perceive. It may not be in the ways that we like. God is going to fulfill the promise that's found in his word, which is why you need to know the word, to know the promises of God, that you can maintain hope in the midst of dark times. 
It was dark for the Israelite nation at that time. They were enslaved to these whole empires, Babylon and Rome and and Media and all these empires were over them, but God was going to fulfill his promises. Tremper Longman says this, God's promises, though long delayed, had not been forgotten. Jesus and his ministry were perceived as God's fulfillment of covenantal promises now centuries old. The tree of David, hacked off so that only a stump remained, was sprouting a new branch. Jesus the Messiah came in fulfillment of the kingdom promises to David and of the Gentile blessings promised to Abraham. God's providence cannot be deceived or outmaneuvered. You can't outmaneuver the sovereignty of God. What God intends, it will indeed take place. That's a good hope for us. However, there's something even more profound in the midst of the genealogy, okay? Did you catch it when we were reading it? If you, if you think you know, I want you to think of it in your head. And if you get it right, give yourself a pat on the back or something, okay? But there was something that was going on throughout the genealogy that, that Matthew kept sneaking this in. It's truly astounding, okay? And it's that there are five women that are named in the genealogy of Jesus, Now, that may not sound astounding to American readers, but that is truly a fascinating thing because, one, in those days, you almost literally found no trace of a woman in any ancient genealogy. Now, part of that was because the inheritance came through the men. So in a very real sense, there was no real uh, reason to mention the woman, if you will, because the inheritance came through the men, right? However, in another sense, which even in that phrase, you can hear me kind of hesitating to say that, but in another sense, women were considered second-class citizens back in the day. In fact, there were actually laws in some areas that a dog's testimony in court was more reliable than a woman's testimony in court. All right? Feel great about that, ladies? (laughs) Okay? Like, let's pause for a quick second, okay? You have to understand how countercultural Scripture is. Like, like some of these things just sound commonplace to us, and they kind of sound like, oh yeah, that's, that's how it's supposed to be, because it is how it's supposed to be. It's the word of God. It's scripture, right? But in a lot of ways, it is extremely controversial. It's extremely countercultural. They do things that almost don't make sense. In fact, early Christianity was not rejected because people found it hard that a dead man raised again from the grave that he laid in. Like, that's not why Christianity was rejected. The reason it was rejected was because of things like this, that there were women named all throughout. And remember, a woman's testimony meant nothing. And so it was women that are mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. Who cares? Discredit it then. Or it was women who touched the feet of Jesus or that Jesus spoke deep theological truths to. Or, catch this, it was women that first saw Jesus at the resurrection. And instead of Matthew doctoring the actual history to better fit that cultural context, he left it in as truth. Why? Because God sees no difference between male and female. They are both created in the Imago Dei, but this is literally a countercultural thing. Like Matthew, if he wanted his gospel, John, Mark, Luke, if they wanted their gospels to be accepted, they would have left out Mary Magdalene and Mary and, and Martha and these women that saw Jesus because if you take it to court, that gets tossed out. You no longer have to believe in Jesus. And they're trying to convince people to believe in Jesus. Like, like think about how countercultural that is, okay? And so in a lot of ways, Matthew is, is shifting this. He's not doctoring these truths. He's trying to honor these women. So there are three things in the midst of the genealogy that should be shocking to us. Firstly, there are women, okay? But secondly, though, is that all the women minus Mary were Gentiles, 
Now, this is profound. So there were gender outcasts or outsiders, but there were also racial outsiders or people who were not of the Jewish community. Not just Gentiles, though, but Gentiles that had a negative history with Israel. Like, remember, he's writing to a Jewish audience. This isn't Luke. This is him trying to convince the Jews to believe in Jesus, and he's laying out things that would probably shock a lot of the Jews. Matthew doesn't care. Because he's trying to present the truth of the Bible. Part of the reason that we can trust the word of God doesn't doctor itself to fit into cultural context. It's always countercultural, which is why some of the things today are countercultural to our culture, but we can trust it still because God knows what he's doing, right? He was honoring women then, and what he lays out in his word today that may seem countercultural, one day we'll realize this is the truth. Because it's the word of God. Now, he's showing these people, right, because of uh, uh, Rahab the Canaanite, let's say. Man, the Canaanites were supposed to be wiped off of the face of the earth. But because of her faith in Yahweh, God saved them. Or Ruth, the Moabite. Moabites were not allowed into the presence of God. Yet Ruth is in the genealogy of Jesus. And so instead of God changing things up or or shifting it or altering it to allow the Moabites to enter into the tabernacle, God instead tabernacled in Ruth. God came to her. Instead of her having to go to him, he literally came through her seed, through the woman's womb, came the Messiah, like into a Moabite woman comes the chain of God. Even the king of David, Ruth was his grandmother. Like, this is profound, okay? And so there are Gentiles, even more though, these are not the most pure women in the world, as you see there on the screen. So there are gender outcasts, there are racial outcasts, and then there are moral outcasts. Rahab was a prostitute. Tamar had an incestuous relationship with her father. Bathsheba was another man's wife and committed adultery with King David. Like, look at Jesus' lineage there. The gender outsiders, the racial outsiders, the moral outsiders. Like when we tell people about our lineage, just think about it like this, reverse it onto us. When you tell people about your lineage, you usually want to tell people about the things that are like great. Like Alexander Hamilton was related to my sister-in-law, right? Like that's kind of a cool one, okay? Like if you knew that your great-great-grandfather was responsible for running the biggest slave trading ring in the South, you probably wouldn't like boast about that, right? It wouldn't be somebody like, yeah, look at this, right? My grandpa's grandpa, they, he sold 10,000 slaves. That's pretty cool, huh? Like, we don't say that, right? <laughs> it's a joke. Don't worry, you can laugh at that, right? Like, well, we don't say that, okay? Why? Because we wouldn't be encouraged by that. However, if William Wilberforce was in our genealogy, we would. You know, the man that sold 10,000 slaves, but got uh, uh, brought into the grace of God and then wrote our beloved hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet a sound that saved a wretch like me. He knew what he did was wrong. He then flipped and turned into being one of the biggest fighters against slavery because he realized that God created all mankind in the Imago Dei, in the image. And so he shifted. We'd be proud of that because he'd be somebody that we can kind of boast in. Hey, look, this man that that used to do these terrible things are now doing these great things. But we don't tend to boast in people who aren't that great in our genealogy. We find the heroes in some ways. But in Jesus' genealogy... There's a lot of moral outsiders. There's a lot of people who did some kind of messed up things. And so though perfection doesn't run in Jesus' lineage, grace does. Grace runs. And Jesus, in fact, is the savior of all of them. 
right? And so Matthew is being clear from the start that it doesn't really matter what your gender is, what your racial makeup is, what your moral makeup is, that Jesus can be your king and your Messiah and your savior. This is a profound truth. Are you noble like Abraham or like Hezekiah? Great. You can have an even more noble one over you. Or are you an outsider? Are you an outcast like Ruth? Or are you morally corrupt like Tamar was? You know, you can't be more morally corrupt than God's grace is good. He can still be your savior. Like any of you in here ever wanted children so bad that you tricked your father into sleeping with you so you can have kids? Is that too far? <laughs> That's what Tamar did. Right? That's a little, I mean, literally. And it's laid out in scripture as wrong, but she encountered even through that very situation the grace of God. Like God's grace extends to us all. We can all be brought into the kingship of Jesus. This is the type of king that we have. He doesn't kick out those that don't make him look good like most kings would. He brings in people that may even stain his reputation a little bit because he wants you. He wants you. He wants that relationship with you. God is a great king. God forgives you no matter where you're at, okay? Lastly, I want you to notice verse 6 again. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Notice that he doesn't even name her name. Do you know her name? Do you remember her name? Bathsheba, right? It's always just the craziest name. She was taking a bath, and her name is Bathsheba, right? There's no correlation in English and Hebrew. It's just, that's just how it happened to be, right? But now in this, in not naming her name, Matthew isn't slamming Bathsheba. What he's doing is he's actually slamming David. He's reminding us of what happened. The prostitute, who wants the prostitute in their genealogy? Rahab, no, forget that. Oh, but King David, I'll take King David, the common Jew would say, yeah, I, I'm, I'm a son of David. Like, like David is in my lineage. And Matthew is saying, really? Like, like that's who you want? David? Like, you know, the, the man that got lazy and didn't go off into war and then saw the woman who was beautiful sleeping and went and stole her from another man and slept with her and then accidentally got her pregnant and then brought the husband in, Uriah, to come try to trick him to sleep with his wife so he would think that the baby was his. Okay, but in this deep sense of irony, Uriah was so faithful to David that he didn't sleep with his wife. Listen, this isn't just a normal man. This is Uriah. Uriah was one of David's mighty men, scripture calls him. What that means is when David was running from Saul and was hiding in the caves, Uriah was one of the men that was hiding with him. He was loyal to David. He risked his life for David. David knew him intimately because it was just a few of them, 30 of them to be exact, while they were in the caves hiding from Saul. Like, this is that man. And he would betray him for his wife. You think he didn't know whose wife that was? And then he brings Uriah in. He doesn't sleep with him, so he sends him back out to get murdered, and then he lies about it for a year. You want that man in your lineage? Right? Jesus is saying that that's who you want in your king, the man who stole another man's wife. Do any of your sins in here outweigh that one act of sin? <laughs> like, think about that. Are you lazy and a murderer and an adulterer and a liar and a deceiver? It, like, like is that, does that describe you a little? Like, like, this one sin of David tends to outweigh most of ours combined, it feels like. Yet, clearly, God had grace upon David because David was a man after God's own heart. God drew him to himself and even forced David, though he didn't want to, into repentance for that situation. God can save all mankind. That's what Matthew is showing. 
Anybody can be under King Jesus. You don't have to be royal. You can be an outsider or an outcast. Or if you think you're royal, you're probably not that great. You're probably like King David who had a lot of flaws, yet God can save you anyway. Even in this wording, we're reminding that David's not that great, but Jesus is. Jesus is a great king, and that's Matthew's point to his whole gospel, is that Jesus is a better King David. Jesus is a greater King David. He's the King David that we all wish that we had. He's the true king that sits on the throne. He's an even better king of the Jews. He can ransom captive Israel, but not just from all of the other countries that owned Israel. No, they were enslaving Israel, and that's what King David did was he freed Israel from all these other countries. Jesus is a king who can free Israel and the church from a greater captive, which is sin and Satan and death, and Jesus defeats all three of those. Jesus is a better king. He's a greater King David. He's the king that our hearts long for. The reason that this whole political season has been so uh, much of an upheaving in our hearts is that we want a great king. We have him. Jesus is king. He's the better king. He's the king that none of us deserved, but that all of us can have. Because Jesus gives himself so freely to us. See, what David did is he took things that wasn't his, like Bathsheba, And he took it and he used it for his own advantage. But what Jesus did is he gave up things that were rightfully his. He gave up the kingdom. He gave up eternity. He gave up the the God that was in him and made himself a man. He gave up his own life, which was rightfully his, so that you and I, who have no rights to the kingdom or to life forever, can now have it in King Jesus. He's a great king that doesn't rule with an iron rod. Yet, that's his second advent. But we get to be on his team then. Right now, he rules with the cross. That's how our king rules, by laying down his life. Not by destroying all the nations around like King David, but by bringing all nations to himself, being a blessing to all nations like the Abrahamic covenant fulfilled. Do you see this truth here? Look at the King Jesus, right? The king. Even more, I love John's genealogy. See, because in Matthew, remember the chart at the start, in Matthew's genealogy, he's the king of the Jews. In Mark, he's a servant. And servants or slaves tend to not have genealogies. They just serve, and Jesus is a servant. In Luke's genealogy, he's for all man, and so he's going back to everybody. But in John's genealogy, it just simply says this, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And he was in the beginning with God. Jesus has no genealogy because he's eternal, the only non-created one. And so in a very real way, Jesus is a man, remember, like we said, that can save us from our sins. But in another way, Jesus is also God, has no genealogy because he has always been in existence. The word was with God. The word was God. Jesus is both God and man. And see, none of our genealogies can measure up No matter who our ancestors are, no matter if our parents had faith, like that doesn't save us. We don't have what it takes. We don't have nobility running through our bloodline. Even if we are children of King David, we don't have what it takes. But we can enter into a new genealogy. Jesus can be our father. God, the father, can be our father. Jesus, our brother, the Holy Spirit, enter into us to make us a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. We can submit ourselves to the rule of King Jesus. We can give ourselves to him.
Tim Keller in his book, Jesus the King, says this. If Jesus is the king, you cannot make him a means to your end. You cannot come to a king negotiating. You lay your sword at the king's feet and say, command me. If you try to negotiate instead, if you say, I'll obey you if you aren't recognizing him as a king. But don't forget this. Jesus is not just a king. He's a king on a cross. If he were only a king on a throne, you'd submit to him just because you have to. But he's a king who went to the cross for you. Therefore, you can submit to him out of love and trust. This means coming to him, not negotiating, but saying, Lord, whatever you ask, I will do. Wherever or whatever you send, I will accept. When someone gave himself utterly for you, how can you not give yourself utterly to him? Taking up your cross means for you to die to self-determination, die to control of your own life, die to using him for your agenda. He's a king, and we should submit to him as that. This section, historically, Matthew 1, has been affectionately called the begats. Because if you remember in the King James Version of the Bible, it would say things like, David begat Solomon, who begat Rehoboam, who begat, begat, begat. It just kept saying begat over and over and over again. Think about how beautiful and rich our God is, that even in the begats, it's dripping with God's grace and intimacy for us. <laughs> like, like, like in the genealogy is the grace and truth of God how much more the rest of the promises then? Like if we can get these truths out of reading the genealogy of Jesus, like what about the rest of the advent or the rest of the gospel or the rest of the scriptures that explain and portray all these truths, God's promises, his truths are rich in the text. And so here's my prayer for us this advent season as we kind of close, okay? My prayer for us is that, man, if you don't know Jesus as king, that you would know him as that that you would submit to him. He's a great king and one that deserves to be followed, but who doesn't demand that following, who lays down his life and beckons you to come, that you may have a covenantal, intimate relationship with him. And you can have that. You don't have to measure up and be noble. Your sins aren't too bad. Neither end of the spectrum stops you from being entered into the kingship of Jesus. He can be your great king. And my prayer, my hope would be that if you don't know him as king, that literally this Advent season, you would know him as that. That you would submit your life to King Jesus and fall more in love with him. If you do know the king, if you have given your life to Jesus, could you this Advent season try, command your heart, remind your soul of the truths of the gospel that the king became a slave, that you who were slaves to sin may become princes and princesses of the king. One day to rule with him forever. Like remember the promises of God. Remember how rich the scriptures are. God will always fulfill his promise, we said at the start. That anybody can be welcomed in. That God is a king for us all. Man, remember these truths. Immerse yourself in them and let the kingship of Jesus re-spark a wonder and an awe in you that you would give him the praises that he deserves. He's a worthy king, amen? He's a worthy king and he loves you like crazy. Don't submit yourself to a, 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 an earthly king, even if he's as great as King David. You have a better king option. His name is Jesus. Submit yourself to him. I love you guys. Let's pray.
Ma'am, Jesus, thank you that you are a king that died on a cross, was laid in a grave, and then resurrected, and now sits on the right throne forever. You are good, you are good, you are good, God. Emmanuel, God with us. As a king, yet a servant. As God, yet man. Lord, we thank you for this. Let our hearts wonder in awe at who you are. I pray that this Christmas season, God, that as we get ready for you, as we remember that the the mystery of the God of the universe entering into a babe in a manger where horses eat, you would do that for us. You love us, God. Let us not forget that truth. God, I pray that if we do not know that love, that even today we would choose to follow you and begin to experience that love that will last for all of eternity. And if we do know you, Jesus, would you remind us of that? Even when the promises seem dark, even when it feels like there are 400 years where we don't hear your voice, let us trust you still because you have always come through on your word. Jesus, thank you for being the seed of Abraham, the blessing to the nations. Thank you for being the king of David the better king. God, I pray that we would remember that and even sing out to that right now, God. Even right now, respond to your kingship and worship you. We pray this in your very beautiful name. Amen. Um, At four different places in the room, there are uh, places for...